Mark Perpich lives on a tree-lined block in Detroit's Brightmoor neighborhood. In the front yard, a mattress and box spring lean against a tree, and the guts of a projection television sit on a card table. Nailed to the tree is a sign that reads, We Support the Police. Today, Mark and his son are repairing old bicycles. We sell these bikes like this and clean them up and get everybody going. And then I uh, get lawnmowers. That, you know, a lot of guys, I guess they call them, you know, junking and stuff. They come up to me and, and they sell these things to me. After 30 years in the suburbs, Mark just recently moved back to Brightmoor to look after his aging grandmother. A lot has changed since he last lived here in the 70s. In many ways, Brightmoor is emblematic of the problems that Detroit has faced during the last 40 years. Nestled in the northwest corner of the city, Brightmoor was a poor but stable working-class community throughout much of the 20th century. After 1967, however, much of the neighborhood's white, working-class core staged a quick exodus to the suburbs. Mark's family was one of the first to go. After 1974, after the 70s, that's when... Uh it started really getting bad because I know a lot of people live in this neighborhood. We moved from Detroit to Canton. Everybody was around here and moved out that way. For decades, the population continued to plummet and jobs evaporated. Stories of the rough neighborhood, nicknamed Blightmore, permeated the city. And as crack cocaine spread throughout the streets in the 80s, the neighborhood became synonymous with urban decay. You wouldn't want to come around in this neighborhood because there was you know, crack houses blown up because my grandfather was telling me the house right next to me got blown off the foundation. For few neighborhoods in the city was the drug epidemic more destructive or its consequences more persistent. In the late 90s, the Detroit News described Brightmoor as a place where dozens of drug dealers loiter conspicuously on street corners and in front of abandoned houses, brazenly advertising their presence by waving and shouting to passing motorists, I've got it. Today, as downtown Detroit undergoes a dramatic facelift, neighborhoods like Brightmoor continue to struggle. Unlike some of the more fortunate neighborhoods of the city, revitalization efforts have largely stalled in Brightmoor. A major housing initiative in the 90s resulted in many of the homes suffering the same vandalism and neglect they were built to alleviate. The city government singled out Brightmoor for urban renewal as part of the Next Detroit initiative. But many residents are skeptical. I, I was born after the riots, so I don't know too much about it. But I know the riots we got going on in the streets. Yeah, it's kind of bad. The riots around here right now is bad. It's like with the young generation growing up right now. It's just, they, it's crazy out here, you know? Kado and Chris grew up in Brightmoor. Chris was casually rolling a blunt in a cigar casing as we talked. For them, precious little has changed. Every day it's shooting, yeah. killing around here. From the east side to the west side. Yeah, yeah. Actually speaking, I mean, from the 67 riots, you say? Yeah. I mean, Detroit ain't never recuperated as far as the surroundings and how, how things happen. I mean, it ain't changed at all. The young men are giving a lesson in entrepreneurship to a group of neighborhood children who had set up a lemonade stand on colored milk crates. Kato and Chris say they hope to shield the kids from the violence they saw growing up. We teach them how to sell things. We teach them how to, you know, they go to school every day, you know, when they, you know, we just teach them how to survive the right way instead of the wrong way. The boys take pride in the small community they share here with their neighbors. They look up to William, a strong, astute man in his 40s, who's responsible for much of the unity on the block. We try to keep people from gutting the houses out or, or, or tearing aluminum siding off this, that, and the other. And we look out for each other, especially our children. William grew up in the 60s. 
He says he benefited from having both his maternal parents and grandparents looking over him, a safety net that few kids have today. William brushes off any suggestion that white flight has anything to do with the collapse of his neighborhood. He finds fault with the failures of men in his community to set a positive example for the youth. The, the, the riot has come to pass. So, you know, it's a mentality of the people. If, 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 if people allow other people to rent space in their head, they don't have space for their own thoughts a lot of times. So a lot of people want to be followers instead of being leaders. That's what I see is wrong with Detroit. It's not enough leaders. Williams' leadership has influenced Chris and Cado, who agree that people, not the government, are responsible for Brightmore's future. Still, change is a long and arduous process. Sheila Scott sits on her front porch with her brother and his wife. Across the street is a burnt boarded up house and an abandoned lot. She points to the burnt out house. Forty years after the riots, her neighborhood is still burning. I don't know was it accidental or what. And one night my daughter and her her um, her fiance was coming home and they saw the fire from the back. And they called the fire department and they caught it. So many fires be starting from these houses when they sitting, sitting up abandoned, you know, and you have to watch for things like that. Sheila's optimism is peculiar. I ask about the abandoned lots, and she says that she likes the peace and quiet of the neighborhood. I ask about neighborhood crime, but she's willing to turn a blind eye as long as her family remains safe. The city has closed a number of notorious public schools in the area, but Sheila has no complaints there either. The schools are good. They, yeah, they are real good. Uh, I didn't have any problems with the school. Sheila cares a great deal about her children's education and speaks glowingly about her three-month-old granddaughter. But in a neighborhood where the opportunities are so slim and challenges can seem insurmountable, optimism becomes a weapon to battle the uncontrollable. Sheila refuses to concede that things are worse for her children today than they were in the 60s. She holds the conviction that such a tragedy could never happen again in her city. It's not that bad. It's not that bad now for them to be that way, you know. I think the kids are doing good. We just got to work with them. We have to work with our kids. If there's one thing the residents of Brightmoor share, it's this resilience. The riot of 67 and the decades of poverty, violence, and hardship that have followed chase thousands away. Countless families will never come back. But along these dirty streets and among these burnt-out homes, people are still struggling to make a decent living. For those who are left, their hope has hardened into stern conviction. Rather than looking for a light at the end of the tunnel, Brightmore has learned to make do with what it has. The anniversaries of the past tend to lose their gravity when you're struggling to survive in the present. I'm John Notariani.